This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. That there is suffering in life, that there is a cause of suffering, that there's an ending of suffering, which is obviously very abbreviated, and that there's a path that's le- that leads us to the ending of suffering. And that path is the Noble Eightfold Path. So I, I thought the best way to begin this talk would be to actually go through the path factors with you so that we're sort of all on the same page. And they're divided into sort of three sections. Um, the first section would be uh, right view and right intention. And um, I have a wonderful little chart here. <laughs> I, should have, I should have made copies of this for you. But um, right view means what's meant by this in, in the Buddhist perspective is it's an understanding of suffering. Literally, it means that we understand how suffering comes into being, what creates suffering, and what brings suffering to an ending. So we understand suffering, we get an understanding of suffering, we get an understanding of the origin of suffering, we get an understanding of the the cessation of suffering, and an understanding of the way leading to its cessation, which are the Four Noble Truths, as I just described them to you. Right intention... The second uh, factor is an intention to, uh, towards goodwill, towards harmlessness, towards renunciation. The intention to be in the world in a way that's um, in profound integrity with the deepest aspirations of our heart. Then the next three would be uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And... Um, when we, th- when we think of right speech, what we're talking about is abs- abstaining, literally abstaining from lying, abstaining from false speech, or slanderous speech, or harsh speech, or gossip, idle gossip, things like that. You see, these are sort of uh, translations, but basically what it means is that we're careful about the way that we use our speech. And if we think about the power of speech, and the effect that it has on somebody, on other people, uh, we get a sense of the importance of using language in a way that really is in line with not harming. You see? So I'll give you a really practical example. Somebody sent me an email this morning that was absolutely outrageous. In this email, (laughs) they made a full attack and it was out of left field, and it really upset me. I thought, what? And then I got very righteously indignant, and I wanted to slam back. And then I just, I just let it settle. I just felt, what would happen if I engaged back? It would just, and I was with someone when I happened to read the email, and so then my my ability to be present with the person I was present with was completely blocked because I was 
internally so agitated and so upset. Fortunately, because I practiced, I was able to be with those things. And even though I couldn't stop myself from being agitated, I knew what was happening so that I didn't have to, like, perpetuate it or make it worse. And I realized that if I did, I would suffer immediately, and then the person I was with would suffer. And, and it was because of the way this other person used speech without thinking. You know, I'm sure that the intention wasn't to be malicious, but that's the power of speech. It, it really came home to me in a very practical way um, earlier today. So the next um, factor is right action. And, and basically, right action is living in integrity with the precepts. And uh, so non-harming, non-killing, not stealing, being able to trust yourself, other people trust you, not lying, not engaging in sexual misconduct, which should be sexual conduct that would harm yourself or harm someone else. Um, basically living in, in, in integrity with the, with the precepts. Do you all know what the, the precepts are? The guiding uh, principles for... So the, the, main, the five main precepts for, for Buddhists, for lay people, are to... They're training precepts. They're not commandments. They're not... If you, if you somehow don't keep these, it's not like you're going to be bound for hell or something. It's simply, this is a training precept, and, and we do our best to um, live in integrity with them. And the more we're aligned with them, the more our life is, is in harmony with that which brings us happiness and that which sort of takes us away from suffering. So the five precepts would be not to kill, not to lie, not to engage in sexual misconduct, uh, not to steal. It's not to kill, not to steal, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to misuse speech, lie, and not to use intoxicants to the point where they cloud the mind so that you don't know enough not to do the first for her, <laughs> that type of thing. So those... <clears throat> That's what right action would be. Right livelihood means to not engage in things that um, uh, engage in livelihood that is unwholesome, that leads to sort of defiled mental states. And so there's some classic things uh, that are mentioned. Let's see if I've got them here. Yeah, the classic things are not to deal in weapons, human trafficking, um, the slaughtering of life, the, the manufacture and distribution of, of intoxicants and poisons. I don't know how they came up with a list like this, but this is, that's the traditional list. Okay, the next three factors are right mindfulness, um, Right concentrate and right concentration and, and one two three four five six seven and which one am I oh right effort I don't have in here so so right effort what that means is 
um, <clears throat> that we, <clears throat> when we notice things that are unwholesome, we uh, try to avoid these things. And, and, and when I say unwholesome, there could be something like the desire to lash out at this person who sent me this, this email this morning, which was... <laughs> You can see I'm still upset about this damn email. <laughs> but <clears throat> to avoid going there, <clears throat> because that just leads us down the rabbit hole. <clears throat> and if we go there, once we realize it, to just drop it, to abandon it. Um, and then <clears throat> on the opposite side, it's to cultivate that which brings us happiness and brings us into integrity with our, with our um, aspirations. So to cultivate those qualities and to nourish those qualities, that's what is meant by right effort. Right mindfulness is the contemplation of the body, feelings, mind, and phenomena. So we, do, we practice mindfulness of body, of feeling tones, that which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, we practice mindfulness of mind, noticing what's arising and passing away in the mind, and, um, and we come to recognize uh, the hindrances to, to our meditation and the factors that lead us to awakening. And then the last uh, factor here is right concentration, which basically is to establish the stability of mind that's necessary to, um, to be free, necessary to see into the nature of, of our experience so that we can see clearly what's happening and not be uh, fooled by, by our sort of clouded vision of things. So those are the eight factors. I know I went through them very quickly, but I don't have <laughs> that long of a time. And this is an overview of, of, of how, the fact, uh, how the Eightfold Path fits into this teaching of the Buddha. So the teachings of the Buddha aren't um, a set of doctrines that's about the origin, origin and the ending of, of things that require us to believe in them. It's not about a belief system. Rather, the teachings of the Buddha are a message of the deliverance from suffering. What the Buddha taught was, when, when queried, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that's suffering and the ending of suffering. So what is that that brings us to the, finally to the ending of suffering, which is what would be called liberation in the Buddhist context. So <clears throat> the Buddhist teaching is rather a message of deliverance from suffering. And the Dhamma that the Buddha taught um, claims to be something that we can verify in our own experience. We don't have to believe anything. You don't have to believe anything that I'm saying tonight. You can test it out in your own experience, and you can see that it works or it doesn't work. The Buddha was pretty confident that it would work, so this whole teaching is, is predicated on the fact that 
we can each individually in our own lives verify whether it's effective or it's not effective. And um, along with this message came the method of practice that leads to the ending of suffering. And the method of practice is the Noble Eightfold Path. So when you start to work with the factors and make them your own, you'll begin to see in very practical ways how they show up in your life. And I've tried to give you an example of that with my own experience today with the email. The damn email that has upset me so so terribly. <laughs> so, um, and when we practice this way, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path. In other words, liberation from suffering is the inevitable fruit of the path. And if we follow the path, the Buddha tells us that we, if we follow it with persistence and steadiness, that liberation will blossom in our lives. Now, maybe full liberation won't blossom for all of us or any of us, but we have moments where we touch these qualities that we know are moments of freedom. And so you can begin to get a a sense of the somatic experience in your body of what freedom might feel like when you do something as simple as notice what it's like to release your breath through the act of simply letting it go. Letting it go. You see, so you hear many teachers say, let go, let go, let go, which is a great and, and, and useful teaching, but it's not all, people don't always know how to let go. I say this in many talks that I give. When I heard teachers tell me to let go, I'd say, great, just what does that mean? If I knew how to let go, do you think I would hold on? I don't know how to let go. So, but the learning to let go is not something that we have to struggle with. We simply notice moments when we do let go. When you go from waking consciousness into sleep consciousness, there's a letting go that happens. You see? Just noticing your everyday normal experience, these things, and you'll see that the, the eightfold path, the factors of the path will show up and the way to practice will show up throughout our day. We don't have to sit on a cushion in order to see these things. Now, if we don't take the time to sit down, our minds aren't, you know, the normal default mode of the mind is to be restless and to be on guard and to you know, if, if it doesn't have something to, to focus on, it looks for trouble. That's what the mind normally does. That's what the brain is programmed to do. So we have to train ourselves. And it's interesting because, you know, in this compassion course that, that um, I and other people are teaching, it be, I never thought about this before, but these qualities of compassion of you know, loving kindness, of feeling really genuine happiness for other people's 
good fortune and, 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 you know, a sense of equanimity. These things are sort of natural and innate in us. Mindfulness is not. Mindfulness, we have to learn how to be mindful. Now, the interesting thing about it is that if we're not mindful, we can't notice that these other things are in us. So everything, when I would go to my teacher in Burma, I thought I was learning a concentration meditation so that the mind would be deeply absorbed and so on and so forth. And he would tell me time and again, everything is built on the backbone of mindfulness. If you can't see what's happening, you'll never be able to get concentrated. Or you will never recognize concentration when it shows up. That's a better way of saying it. I don't think people can make themselves be concentrated. I think that they can learn to get out of the way through the application of mindfulness. And then a concentrated, stable mind will, will show up. But that's another talk for another day. So <clears throat> Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a wonderful American monk who lived in Sri Lanka for many years, says that um, in, in response to this idea that liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path. He says, I love this. You're about to get a transmission, so listen very carefully, right? There are only two, two requirements for reaching the final goal. Does anyone know what they are? Anyone has ever been into a talk of mine? Okay. The first is to start, and the second is to continue. Over and over and over again. If we're willing to start and continue over and over and over again, wisdom will dawn. If you're willing to start and continue with training the mind to, you know, to, to be with a, an object so that it, your mind will quiet down, sooner or later, the mind will be disciplined. Sooner or later, things will quiet down. And then you will experience in your own direct experience what it's like to have a calm and tranquil mind, what it's like when the mind is stable. And when the mind is stable, mindfulness is quite bright and you can see what's happening. That's the purpose of quieting the mind down. So um, these eightfold... Uh, 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 the, these path factors, these eight path factors, are basically mental components that we can cultivate and develop through determination and effort, through starting and continuing, and when we drop it, we start and we continue again. Just start and continue. And we look for ways to apply these things in our lives so that we don't beat the heck out of ourselves when we were not able to do it. So I, I, I want to be very practical again. You're meditating and you're trying to meditate uh, holding your awareness, the focus of your awareness on your breath. And the mind will wander. That's what mind's doing. That they they wander. So the mind wanders. And um, 
And when the mind wanders, <clears throat> basically, all that we have to do is wait for the breath to show up again. But what happens when the mind wanders is that most of us think that something's wrong because we're supposed to be, we think we're supposed to be with the object that we've chosen, which in, in this case, I'm using the breath as an example. We think that something's wrong. We think that we're doing something wrong. We think that other people are doing it right and we're doing it wrong, so we start comparing. We start judging ourselves. We start criticizing ourselves or we get angry. We get frustrated. And, and then we take our attention and we slam it back onto the breath. And maybe that works for a few breaths, but we sooner or later realize it's not sustainable. That kind of violence, that's actually counter to this idea of non-harming and non-killing. That is an act of violence when you come to recognize it. And the rejection of the experience of the wandering mind eliminates our possibility to see what's being revealed when we meet the mind that's wandering. It's, it eliminates our possibility to see the judgments that arise, to see the frustration that arises, to see the striving that arises, to see the resistance to things being the way that they are because we prefer them to be another way, because we think they're supposed to be. It, we can't see any of that. And instead, we end up with a big knot in our stomach. If you're like me, that's what, <laughs> that's what you do. And you can do this over and over and over again. So, so to simply be willing to extend a little bit of kindness to yourself in 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 a situation like that or any situation in your daily life experience and just start and continue. Just, okay, if your intention is known, if your intention is solid and you're willing to be kind enough to yourself to know, accept yourself as a human being, you know, and you have good intentions but sometimes it doesn't always work out, you just start and continue again. That's all there is to it. You know, we're not, we're not in some sort of a competition when we sit down to meditate. And we're not in a competition with ourselves. And if we are, because some of us are, if we discover that we are, you see, if we have enough mindfulness and enough stability of mind to see that that's what's happening, we can meet that with compassion. We can meet it and hold it with compassion, and then we can start and continue again. You see? So I'm going to go back to my email because it was such a learning experience for me. It was like I didn't have to fight with the fact that I was agitated. I was agitated. I was feeling agitated. I was feeling really, can I say it, pissed off. I was really not a happy camper. I could feel all of those things and not be those things. Just let those things happen. You see? And that, in that way, I didn't have to express it or unleash it in a way that instead 
instead. I hope that, that I'm <laughs> dealing with it in a way that's useful to other people as well as to myself. So start and continue. It's an important message. So <clears throat> the Buddhists uh, taught that dukkha is our only real spiritual problem that suffering is our only real spiritual problem and that everything else emerges out of this, this quality of suffering. So I know that many of you are familiar with descriptions of dukkha, but I want to offer, offer this description anyway, especially for people who might not be. So what is dukkha? Dukkha is sometimes uh, described or defined as you know, pain, misery, lamentation, pain, despair, and all of that, those really horrendous things that you think of. But um, dukkha is present in everyone's life. This kind of suffering is present in everyone's life unless we're totally enlightened. Um, And then since... Since I'm not enlightened, I can't tell you whether an enlightened person is free from suffering or not. But uh, I'm assuming that they're not. Uh, But dukkha can also be experienced as a vague, sort of unlocalized sense that things just aren't quite right. You see? So some people call that sort of an unsatisfactory quality. And even that's a little bit hard to understand. This, this sense that things just aren't quite right. This, you know, if only this chair had a different angle to it, maybe I'd be more comfortable, you see? So dukkha could be something as, sim- as simple as that. It's the whole range of our experience. So, so, so that there's a clear understanding that dukkha doesn't just mean intense suffering like the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or your house burns down or something major happens in your life. It's just this sense that things aren't quite right. And it's also when your house burns down. You see, it's also when when you know you get a diagnosis of a serious illness or something like that. This is all dukkha. But it doesn't always have to be on the, you know, the red alert end of the, the scale. So <clears throat> the Buddha didn't really um, talk or teach about like metaphysical things. Those things weren't of, of a lot of interest to him. He, well, I, I, like I know what was of interest to the Buddha. But in his teaching, he focused on this question of suffering, of dukkha, and how we deal with dukkha, what causes dukkha, how we recognize it, and how we bring dukkha to an end so that we can experience liberation from suffering. So, to give you an example, dukkha appears in, in events such as birth, aging, and death, we would expect, 
right? It arises with sickness, accidents, and illnesses. Dukkha arises with hunger and thirst, considering the range of dukkha, yes. Um, It shows up in our reactivity to things that we find disagreeable, like nasty emails uh, or events. It shows up in, in sorrow or anger or frustration or fear that might be aroused because we're afraid we're going to lose things that we'd like or hold dear to us, you know. Um, uh, it shows up in uh, our, our thirst for that which will bring us pleasure, sort of hedonic orientation. I want a red Tesla. <laughs> that will really make me happy if I can get a red Tesla with black wheels. <laughs> I like the ones with black wheels. <laughs> and our fear of pain. So our search for pleasure and our fear of pain. Dukkha will show, show up against in, in these ways. And, <clears throat> you know, when we're looking for pleasure, we're running after pleasure, and when we're trying to avoid pain, we're running away from pain in all the ways that the, that thing happens. So this is how we spend our life, most of us. And then what happens in the end? Does anyone want to say? This is a cheerful... In the end, we die. Thank you. And all that activity has to be let go of, along with the red Tesla. Oh, God, I can't bear it. I, I used that example in one of my classes and someone raised their hand I said, I have one. <laughs> I said, I hope you like it as much as I think I would like it. <laughs> so, um, in the end, we die and we have to leave everything behind. Everything. The people that we love, even the people that we love. All of our accumulated wealth, all of our possessions, all of our, our roles in life, all of the things that we identified with, that all goes in the end, you see. And that's a disturbing thought for a lot of people. It's not easy to be with that thought. And so even just thinking about that, that can bring up dukkha for us. Just to think about what it would be like to be separated I'm, I'm going to be a camp counselor this weekend at a Camp Aaron. I don't know if you are familiar. Do, do you know what these Camp Aarons are? They're camps for children who, who lost a mommy or a daddy or a, a grandparent or a, someone close in their life, a brother or a sister or an auntie. And, and it's like, I think, oh, my God, <laughs> this is going to be an experience. So... Everything gets left behind. And, you know, sometimes, for, obviously for kids, it's not so easy to understand these things. And, and I can appreciate what it's like for children because as adults, it's hard for us to do it. 
you see, but for kids. So, all of life on any plane, whether it's mental or physical, um, it all comes to an end sooner or later. And fundamentally, that brings us face to face with the truth of impermanence. The Buddha teaches us that nothing is permanent, that everything is a process, uh, a dynamic process of arising and passing away. Every thought that we have is replaced by another thought, every sensation, every emotion, every mind state, every, everything is replaced. Our bodies are you know, little babies, and then we're children, then we're teenagers, and then we're young adults, and then we're middle-aged, and then we're elderly. And everything changes. Nothing stays the same. And yet we think that we're stable. We think that. We think that we reside here, and everything, we can't see this, but we can imagine, and we think that everything is revolving around it. It's a interesting. It's interesting when you think about it in that way. So, um, so <clears throat> the problem of dukkha is basically the cornerstone of the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddhist teachings, again, the, the gift of the Buddhist teachings are the Four Noble Truths. And in these Four Noble Truths, the Buddha declares that life is inseparably infused with and tied to dukkha. The Buddha does not say life is suffering, that, all, that the only thing in life is suffering. But he says that life what is the problem that we have is dukkha, is suffering. This is the problem. This is what disturbs us. This is what leads us to do things that are unwholesome. That's a funny word in the modern world, but it leads us to do things that take us down the rabbit hole of, of suffering. So, so <clears throat> for most of us, the beginning of our search, the beginning of our spiritual, real spiritual quest, it's, it's born out of suffering. Most of us don't come to a path like this because everything is perfect in our world. Most of us come because we're dealing with something. I know that when I came to this path, when I had the good fortune, the good karma to come to this path, my life had hit its nadir. Everything that I had, everything that I loved, everything that I treasured, everything, gone. And um, it was then that I simply couldn't escape any longer the degree and the reality and the presence of dukkha in my lifetime. I couldn't deny how deeply I was suffering. So, for many people, it's just like it was for me. You can't, you know, we have these minor things and we can go along and, you know, our job is pretty good and we have a nice family and the kids don't raise too much hell and 
life can be, you know, just... But things can turn our worlds upside down, and some event will be enough to actually trigger us. And Pema Chodron, I don't know, some of you may know Pema Chodron. She's, a, she's a, an American uh, Tibetan nun and a, and a great teacher. She's, got a, she's written a library of books, but one of them is called The Wisdom of No Escape. I love that title, The Wisdom of No Escape. And that's really what happens. It's like when we, when we encounter that kind of suffering in our life so that there's no way that we can escape from it any longer, that sometimes will... Uh, precipitate a profound personal crisis that will trigger an awakening. And the awakening may be the desire to find something, some path that will lead us to freedom from this kind of suffering. It's a recognition, a, a deep, profound knowing directly of suffering, accepting it and not trying to distract ourselves and pretend that it's otherwise. And that crisis can sometimes awaken this this desire for a better way. So it's when our worlds get turned upside down. And, and, and when I say to see suffering directly, this is something that, that um, I, I try to emphasize in the compassion program as well. We, it's, we suffer... And we feel the effects of suffering in our lives, but we don't know suffering directly. We suffer identified with suffering. We don't see suffering as suffering. So something happens, you see. I'm going to use... I didn't know this that I was getting such an opportunity when I opened my email today. But when you encounter something like that, you can just be, you feel all the effects of the anger and all of the things that arise in you, you see, and you get lost in it. It's not like you don't know that you're suffering. You, you know that you're suffering, but you haven't seen the suffering. You haven't actually seen the suffering. You're identified with the suffering. You think it's you, you see. And so when you can see this, see suffering with mindfulness, when you can actually see it and know it directly, your relationship to the suffering, our relationship to suffering, shifts and changes so that you can be in a more equanimous relationship with it. So that sounds sort of circuitous. I want to try and make this a little bit uh, more immediate so that we get it. I'm communicating more clearly. Um, I've done a lot of of end-of-life work, and when you're working with people who are dying, there's the, you know, the inevitable outcome of what's happening. Death is approaching. They're going to die. Right, so <clears throat> you can you can be with that truth um, in a way that sees it and doesn't resist it, 
but feels fully everything that comes along with that. You might be scared, you might be sad, you might be grieving, you might be frightened, if you're the person dying, you might be all of those things. Or you simply see that death is coming and you can experience all of those things, but your relationship to them is peaceful and equanimous. I watched my mom die that way. It was just a beautiful thing to watch. She, it was like she was so peaceful when, when death came, and she knew, she knew it was coming, and I knew it was coming. And it was, it was, it's just a different way to be with something. So you, you, you see it and you know it directly, and, and you see it as a phenomena that's arising and passing away, arising and passing away, just like everything else. So it's when all these escape routes are blocked that we're really ready to seek a way, another way to be with our experience. Uh And so when the conditions are right in our life, and that's one, one way that, we know the conditions are right. We have no alternatives. Um, we somehow stumble across the path. This path somehow comes into our life if we're lucky enough to have that happen. And <clears throat> in order to follow this path, we have to have some faith that it leads us somewhere, that there's efficacy in, in making this effort to follow this path. And so we look at the path, we can look at this Noble Eightfold Path, and we can use a couple of criteria to evaluate whether this is a path that actually leads us where we want to go. So one of the things that we can, we can look at is... Does the path give us uh, a full and accurate picture of the range, the all-pervasive range and nature of suffering, of dukkha? Does it, does it actually give us a sense of how dukkha can show up in an email? or how dukkha can show up in a minor irritation or a disappointment, or an impatience in a traffic jam, or with a colleague or a family member or a loved one. You see, not just in these major life crises type of thing. So does this path give us a full and accurate picture? And... uh, does it give us a correct analysis of the causes that give rise to dukkha? You see? So, so let's go back to, to right effort. And right effort, again, is understood as avoiding that which is distracting or unwholesome and abandoning that which is unwholesome if it's arisen and cultivating that which is wholesome, and maintaining that or nourishing that which is wholesome. So it's abandoning what's unwholesome and 
nourishing what is wholesome. So does this path give us a correct analysis of what leads to suffering and what leads out of suffering? That's just a a, a simple example. Does the path um, uh, teach us how to remove suffering at its root, at its cause? And finally, is it a clear roadmap? Um, well, this is just what I got done saying a moment ago. Is, it's, is it a clear roadmap or method to eradicate the causes of suffering? So, um, so what I want to do is give you a sense of what causes dukkha now, some of the some of the ways that you would look at at this whole subject and how dukkha arises. So, um, <clears throat> so as a lead into that, I would say that uh, any path that uh, claims to lead us to the ending of suffering, we have to be confident that it gives us a reliable account of the causal origination of suffering. In other words, we have to, be, we have, to have some trust that uh, this, this path that's claiming it's going to lead us out of suffering actually cuts, cuts suffering off at its root. And <coughs> suffering can literally only be stopped where it begins. If we, if we tackle it someplace else, it's like putting a Band-Aid on it. So we really have to get to the causes of suffering. So the three most basic causes of suffering, according to the Buddhist um, perspective, um, are <clears throat> what are known as defilements, defilements of mind. Um, and these are deeply rooted defilements that are part of all of us, that are part of all of us, that the pro- process of practicing is a process of purifying our mind from these kinds of, of causes. And those are, are, the three main ones are greed, aversion, and delusion. And the, um, the Pali word for that, those are, for greed, it's uh, lobha, Aversion is dosa, and delusion is moha, for those of you who are interested in that type of thing. So greed is like um, self-absorption, self-centered desire. It's the wanting of things. The desire for pleasure and possessions, the desire and drive for becoming and for survival, the urge to... um, reinforce our ego with power and status and prestige and things like that. Desire, this raw sense of wanting. And wanting leads to this itch that things just aren't the way that we want them to be. If this chair was just a little bit, this is an, an expression of it. Aversion or dosa is um, when we are when we reject our experience or condemn our experience or hate our experience or when we're angry and violent against our experience, when it's a total rejection or it's that 
we have something that we don't want to lose, and so we're so aversive to the idea of losing it that aversion becomes the predominant experience that we have. So that's another way that aversion could be experienced. And then delusion is a, it's the kind of insensitivity that really obscures and blocks clear understanding. It's like we're, we're sort of dull. And uh, it's a, like a mental heaviness, a mental darkness. We're, we're just deluded about the nature of things. But I, I love this description. It's an insensitivity that blocks clear understanding. Because that's really what delusion is. We, you know, people have all sorts of ways of describing it, and I think that's one of the best things. And out of this greed, hatred, and, and delusion come a whole constellation and a cascade of other kinds of defilements, such as arrogance, lethargy, ambition, jealousy, conceit, and so on and so forth. So, you know, one thing leads to another, and these are some of the things that are just natural outcomes of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, and, and judgment would fall into that. So these things are part of life, and if we don't see them, and we don't know them, and we don't know where they lead, we are their slaves. So when you're meditating or when you're sitting at your computer getting irritated, in a way, that irritation is, has come as a teacher. That, that all of these things, we have to recognize these things in order to not be enslaved by them, in order not to just react go through our life reacting. So when all of these things come together, dukkha shows up in us in all sorts of ways. And some of them I've talked about, fear and discontent, pain and sorrow, sadness, um, just aimless drifting through life, just sort of in diluted states of, you know, drifting. So, in order for us to free ourselves from this quality of dukkha, we have to, like, deal with these, these things that cause dukkha, the causes of dukkha, methodically. We can't say, okay... I'm going to go on a month-long meditation retreat, and at the end of the retreat, I'm going to meditate my brains out, and at the end of the retreat, everything's going to be fine. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It would be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way. Ask me how I know. <laughs> um, so in order to do this, it's necessary um, to understand... Uh, exactly how we remove the things that support our enslavement, how we get to the causes, in other words. So, um, again, in the Buddhist teaching, the root of all defilements 
is ignorance. Everything comes because we don't see what's actually happening. We don't see clearly. It all comes out of ignorance, which is called avijja in Pali. The Pali word is that. So ignorance, I'm just going to read this to you because this is, I, I, I like this dis- description of it. Ignorance is the dark shrouding in the mind, the obscuring of our ability to see clearly and our conjuring up all sorts of distorted perceptions and concepts. In other words, the stories that we come up with about every single thing that happens and every single story that we have has who as center stage. Me, myself, and I. In every story that you tell yourself, you're the, you know, you're the star of the story. Delusion is an expression of del- of ignorance, just as aversion and greed are expressions of yes, all together, they all are yes, and. Um, <clears throat> So, so these distorted perceptions and concepts, uh, the mind grasps onto these things as, as this is what the world's like, as attributes of the world. And we just take this as this is, this is the way things are. And we actually start to believe this is the way things are. And the world reinforces that belief. You see? The world tells us we're number one, but for God's sakes, don't do anything kind for yourself because that would mean you're selfish. Giving us the message, we deserve it, we're number one. You see? And so, so these, these misunderstandings are really deluded constructs of the mind. And, and this is the fertile ground in which the defilements of the mind take root. Does that make sense? When we're totally lost in ignorance, then these defilements like uh, jealousy, conceit, anger, arrogance, and so on and so forth, these can grow very quickly in that kind of soil. And that's the soil that the world promotes. I mean, that's the type of thing that the world promotes. All we have to do is look at what's happening in the halls of Congress or Jerusalem or Tehran or wherever we happen to look. You see, there, people are just operating in a way where they're not able to get to the sort of the seed level that would allow us to be in contact with that which is good within all of us. So when we see something we want, greed arises. And if we don't get what we want, we're disappointment, disappointed, and aversion arises. Right? If we don't get what we want, we're disappointed. If we get what we want, we have aversion to the thought of losing it. 
So this is another way aversion arises. And when we struggle against our, li- against our life and against the uncertainties that come in our life, um, our capacity to know and see things for what they really are is diminished. We just can't see these things because we're caught up in greed and, av- and aversion and delusion. And, and when that happens, that's where we tip over into a deluded state, literally. And um, this is, one, one of my teachers describes this as the causal matrix or the, the ground zero of dukkha. Ignorance issuing in the defilements and the defilements issuing in suffering. In other words, um, ignorance uh, gives birth to the defilements and the defilements give birth to suffering. Yes? Okay. So how do we cut off these causes? Having stated that ignorance is basically not knowing things as they really are or seeing things as they really are. Um, we need to, to cultivate a knowledge of things as they really are and to know and see them. And when we, when we do, through the cultivation of things like mindfulness and qualities like compassion and loving kindness, when we actually cultivate these qualities in ourselves, uh, we, we're cultivating the ability to access insight, and, and insight is what leads us to wisdom. And wisdom is what enables us to grasp things really as they are, directly and immediately free from any of our preconceived ideas or preferences. It's simply seeing the truth of things as they are. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that they have to be to our liking. If we can see them as they really are, that is an act of wisdom. That's also an act of compassion. Think about that for a moment, because <clears throat> in my own personal experience, that's, that's really important. When we filter our experience through our ideas, our, our views, and our preferences, and so on and so forth, we actually put barriers between what's real and what we would like to believe in. And what we would like to believe in almost never comes true. I mean, maybe sometimes it comes true. But think of all the plans that you've made. This is going to happen this way, and this is going to happen that way, and the next thing's going to happen in another way. And it almost never happens the way we plan. You know, maybe sort of, but never really the way that we plan. So the, the Buddha teaches us that we can actually cultivate wisdom. And, um, and through the example of his own life, uh, we can see that through a set of conditions, when they arrive, 
arise in our lives, we all have the potential to develop um, in the same way that the Buddha did. We all have the potential to see things as they truly are, and we all have the potential to realize freedom from suffering. Fortunately, the Buddha did the work for us, and he gave us the path that will lead us out of suffering. And um, so I want to just finish by saying that <laughs> that um, <clears throat> the definition of the path is... Um, a course which opens up a way for movement that leads us from where we are to the goal of liberation. That's, that's the essential nature, or the, that is the definition of path as it's used in the Buddhist world. And this path, or in the Buddhist teaching, this path... Uh, leads us to the goal, and um, the goal is the uprooting of the defilements and the ending of suffering, and the path factors, once again, which I want to finish with, are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And... um, this is the, the noble path that the Buddha refers to in the Majjhima Nikaya, or the middle way, uh, as the middle way, uh, not the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, and this noble eightfold path has only two requirements. And now this is a test to see who's been listening. What are the two requirements? Start. <laughs> to start and continue. To start and continue. So may you all start and continue on this noble path that leads you to whatever degree of freedom from suffering uh, you're willing to (laughs) make the effort to try to realize and experience in your own life. And I really encourage everyone to um, have confidence and trust that you have the capacity and the ability to develop these teachings in a way that will transform your life, will touch your life, that there's, there's not a person in this room who can't do it. And if, if the stirring for this kind of awakening and this kind of freedom wasn't in you, you wouldn't be in a room with other people like you are tonight here. The very fact that you're present here is something that you can um, take not just comfort in, but refuge in, in moments where you think that you, you know, the world is overwhelming you. This is a, if we just notice the, the, the blessings that show up in our life and we notice where we can learn you know, we can, the teaching opportunities where we have the opportunity to actually access some some deeper level of 
seeing and understanding that leads to um, that leads to clarity and leads to wisdom. Um, it can all be done, and we we all have the capacity to do it. It's important, however, to take time to meditate because if the mind is not trained to see things, if it's not trained to slow down enough, we're not going to see these things. And then it's also important to continue to come together as a community because to try to cultivate these qualities of mind and heart as a lone wolf in a world that doesn't support this kind of activity or practice is it's it's going to lead to dukkha <laughs> it leads to dukkha so we need one another we're all in this together so those are my thoughts for tonight and we have one or two minutes if anyone has a question about anything if not i'm going to just did you have a question um, I keep this goes back to the earlier part of your talk uh-huh. about what to do when those the mind starts wandering during the meditation mm-hmm. and um, I've heard almost every time I come at, you know not to slam your mind back into the breath and not mm-hmm. to force it back can you just talk a little bit more about what that means when I when I go okay my mind's wandering mm-hmm. I'll focus on my breath and then I focus on my breath mm-hmm. I I'm not sure what that means okay I guess. so that's a very legitimate question and and different teachers would answer it in different ways and I I want to say one of the common ways that people will respond to that is just gently bring your attention back to the breath if you can do that. But I don't find that as a very helpful instruction personally because I, I'm not gentle. <laughs> I would like to be gentle, but that's not my experience. And I find that, that sooner or later I am stressed out, if, especially if the mind keeps leaving the breath, creates stress. A way that I work with it is instead of looking for the breath, I just wait until the breath reveals itself again. I, I consciously and purposely wait for the breath to show up. It will, believe me, you're breathing unless you're as long as you're alive, the breath is going to show up. And if you simply have the intention to wait for the breath to, to appear again, you've actually returned to the breath and you're just waiting for the experience of the breath. You see? So it's really a mindfulness of body practice because in, this, in that way, because then you're, you're noticing where the sensation of the breath is known in the body. So it might be in the belly, it might be in the chest, in the throat, in the nose, or something like that. But there's a qualitative difference in gently bringing the breath back. If you can gently do it, by all means, that's a legitimate 
instruction, but I'm hearing you say that that doesn't always work for you, and it doesn't always work for me either. So I simply tell my students to wait for the breath to show up and see what that happens. And sometimes, if, if the mind won't stay with the breath, you've done everything you can and the mind won't stay with the breath, what you can do is just change the object of the meditation and then, and then begin to notice contact points. The, t- the feeling of the, your feet on the floor or, you know, your weight on the chair or just some, some bodily contact point because that will bring you, as long as you're connected, that will bring you back into the present moment. And the more you can stay with that, the quieter the mind will become. And this is how the mind begins to stabilize. So there's nothing magical about the breath other than it's a very good object of meditation because as long as we're alive, we're breathing. But it can be a little bit, you know, the breath is like, it seems like it's air and how do you hold on to air? And, and people don't get that. It, they can feel the sensation in the body. But you can know the breath through counting, but that's a mental activity. You can know it through noting, and that's a mental activity. Or you can know it directly through where does it show up as a feeling for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.